poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness. Now, nestled in the foothills of a mountain range, Greatness Village is the promised land the Chasing Poker Greatness community calls home. Here, you'll find elite teachers, aspiring pros, and primitive tribal warriors who grew tired of their old ways and found a better path. These are the stories of Greatness Village on Chasing Poker Greatness. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And in today's villager-centric episode, I'm joined by Charlie Yu. Charlie's a machine learning engineer and recreational poker player. He says recreational, but he plays recreationally at some pretty high stakes. Uh, he fell in love with the game in college, played online and live to pay for living expenses and tuition. After briefly testing out the pro lifestyle, he decided it wasn't for him and got a quote-unquote real job instead. He works in the tech industry and is a regular in the live stream games around Austin, Texas. Charlie, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be here. been a fan of the podcast for a while, so it's fun to be on. Awesome, man. I'm glad to have you. It's my my pleasure. And uh, as typically do on the show, tell us your story. How did you enter the world of cards? Yeah, so I can always remember one of my earliest childhood memories was of my dad having the WSOP on the TV when he was just relaxing at night. I would look over his shoulder. He would sometimes play online on Poker Stars, and we would play for pennies. He would uh, he taught our entire family the game. We would play for pennies after dinner sometimes. So I always have fond memories of that. And then kind of forgot about it for a while. But then in high school was just really bored and. Uh, I was kind of sick of like, I was doing the StarCraft grind for a while. So I was pretty competitive StarCraft player, uh, but then wasn't started to plateau even after playing for many hours a day. And then just decided that I wanted to try something new and poker was that new thing. So Uh, tell me before we move further, how old are you? What's the timeline here when you were young and your dad was watching the WSOP? Ooh, this has got to be maybe... When I was in fifth grade, so I mean, that's uh, what I was 12 years old or something. And so that's that makes that like 12 years ago or something like that. <laughs> so you're 24. Yeah, the, ma- the math adds up 12 plus 12, 24. Yeah. So 12 years ago. So we're looking at like 2009 area. And then you start the Starcraft grind somewhere in like 2012 or. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And where'd you grow up? So I was born in Chicago, but lived in South Korea for a while when my dad had to do his military service. And then we moved back to the U.S. and settled down in Connecticut. Yeah. And from what I know about South Korea and the military service, it's like compulsory, right? Every male has to go through two years. Yeah. Yeah. So he had to do it before he turned 35. He had deferred it before to go to school in the U.S. and then worked for a while. But once you're 33, they kind of just pull you in. What happens if you don't? And if you set foot in the country, then you get arrested. And, <laughs> okay. uh, and when your only citizenship is a Korean one, uh, it's not a great one. <laughs> not a great uh, idea to skip. Yeah. For some reason, I'd never heard of the consequences, but I guess that makes sense. You just snap arrested. Yeah. All right. So your dad moved back to Korea with the family, right? When you were, he was 33. What was it like living in Korea? Were You were born in Chicago? Yeah, yeah. So what was it like moving back back to your origins? The food was really good. That was that was the main thing that I remember and the main thing that I miss. And I know that my parents went to uh we they put us in an English speaking school, which was pretty expensive, um, just because they didn't want us to get bullied or anything to because we didn't know the language. And so it was I don't think it was that crazy of a change actually, because we lived in a like a foreign 
apartment building and went to school with other kids that spoke English. So it wasn't uh, wasn't too different, actually. Just uh, just the food and you have to speak Korean to the bus driver and stuff like that. Let me ask, because I'm just satisfying my own curiosity here. Uh, what is it like in South Korea with, you know, North Korea? How big is the island itself? And then like what what are just like the looming thoughts or fears of North Korea? Like how how does that go down? So I was pretty young when I was there. I mean, I was second and third grade, so it's been a while. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so I don't full I wasn't aware really of the political environment. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how well I can answer that question. Okay. I was just curious because it's always like it's something I always think about when I think of North Korea is like they're right next to each other. <laughs> you guys are right next to each other, separated by like a giant fence, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I know that I have some ancestors from North Korea because I remember at one point my like my my grandma's sister or something went to the border to like go visit someone who was still in North Korea and they could visit but they couldn't leave. And I remember thinking that was really sad. But I think I think by now everyone, all of my relatives are now in South Korea. Good. Good for them. I think that's that's the better Korea for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as lifestyle goes, obviously, and just the whole deal, I think North Korea is just, uh, yeah, I, I've seen specials and documentaries and stuff, and it's just like no place on earth. Oh, yeah, for sure. And what's actually interesting about that is out of the, the two areas of Korea, North Korea actually has all the natural resources. And so... That's pretty much, that's like one of the only reasons why they're still able to sustain the way they are. Uh, whereas like South Korea is basically just a barren land, barren peninsula. Oh, wow. Uh, and so they were like, they were able to succeed because they took on kind of like a Singapore governance style and with lots of free trade and capitalism uh, to make up for. And they're in a great place for trading in general, whereas North Korea just decided to uh, take advantage of all their natural resources, become a dictatorship to nationalize all of that. Yeah. All right. So we can we can leave the exploration <laughs> of your second and third grade years in Korea. But um, so you get into StarCraft, move back home, uh, you plateau at StarCraft, which, by the way, is a pretty competitive game. And it's been around forever. And, and I think people still play StarCraft religiously, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's not nearly as big as it was before. When I was playing, there were TV, like TV channels dedicated to StarCraft. Oh, wow. And the people who played were like the highest level of celebrity that you could be in Korea. And now, now that's been taken over by like Fortnite and other games. So that's a pretty high level of celebrity in Korea. They love their gamers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there's a lot of what they call like a PC bang, which is a place basically where it's just a, it's an internet cafe, but more serious than that, uh, than the name suggests, where people will just grab like monster and have food delivered and just stay there and play for like 48 hours straight. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> why, why does the Korean culture love video games and celebrate gamers and video games so much? Do you think? So I think the Korean culture is very, very competitive in general. And there's two ways where that can really manifest. And one of them is sports and the other one would be esports. And Korea also is very competitive in Taekwondo. It's a national sport. And so I think they, but the problem with Taekwondo is that not, actually, I'll take that back. There's, we definitely manifest that in Taekwondo, but uh, yeah, I'm not actually sure why esports really took off. Maybe because we, Koreans don't really do that many other sports, just like swimming and taekwondo. Archery, man. Archery. John sends me videos of the Olympics of the South Korean archers who are just <laughs> unstoppable. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, good at precision stuff. So anyway, I, I'm trying to basically just trying to get a sense of where you're coming from when you do decide to enter the poker world and when you entered it, was it what, how old were you? And was it as obsessive as like, uh, Starcraft? 
at the beginning, it was not obsessive. So I just played for fun with some friends and played for fun online, deposited, would deposit like a hundred dollars at a time. And just whenever I had my computer out in, uh, in class, instead of taking notes, I would just be playing online. Uh, so, and it wasn't serious at all. It's just a pastime really. And then I didn't really get obsessive about it until junior sophomore to junior year of college where one of my, I met, uh, one of my fraternity brothers, Matt. And so he had for his summer job to pay for his living expenses and all that, he would go and play one, two and two, five and was making pretty decent money at it. And so just, he knew that I had been playing before, started to teach me more about the game. And then as soon as I kind of, there was like a moment where it all clicked, where I kind of had like the, oh my God, this is way more complicated than I thought it would, it was, this is so cool. Had that moment and Tell me about from the there, moment. Where, where did the moment come from? Do you remember it specifically? Uh, yeah, it was actually, it was after we were talking about a hand. So I, I went to go and play one, two in a casino for the first time. So we went to River Schenectady. It was about 25 minutes away from my school. And I remember getting stacked with two pair. Uh, somehow, I don't actually remember the full hand, but I remember I had do seven somehow and got to a <laughs> flop. And it, flopped. It, was, <laughs> and it was like queen, uh, queen seven, Deuce, and then it's like, uh, I don't know, like five, and then an ace on the river, and the guy showed up with uh, a straight for it, like runner runner straight. I just remember it being like, how can I even think about like all the possibilities that are going to happen in this hand? And then he started talking to me about how you have to think in ranges, and the, the guy could have this, and you, have, you might have this. So because of that, it's like the way that they interact, you have to, uh, there's like different, that affects how you do your bet sizing, your frequencies. Uh, and before I was, I was basically just clicking buttons, like, oh, this seems fine. And then as soon as he started talking about the strategy, uh, I don't know, maybe something in my mind from being always being drawn to games like Starcraft, where you just are addicted to the game theory and addicted to the figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, it's the zoomed out perspective. Starcraft is very strategic, right? And lots of real time pressure. And I assume problem solving and just reaction. And I think that like poker, there's some overlap there where there's a problem here. There's a, a problem and we need to solve it and we need to choose appropriate frequencies and appropriate actions. And so like, I think for sure there's parallels that sort of <laughs> were likely to click in your brain at some point when you saw the depth of strategy in poker. And uh, so once you, once you see the depth, what was the next step after that? Yeah, I was pretty obsessed from there on. And instead of studying computer science, basically decided to study poker for the next uh, two years of college instead and would skip classes a lot and should just uh, play online and uh, start grinding, like uh, running once videos and eventually bought PileSolver and started just grinding a ton of sims. And how did you progress? Uh, so I started out in like 20, uh, just playing 25 NL and pretty quickly went up to like a hundred NL just following, I don't know, stuff that when it once people, uh, had on their site and then actually had a really long plateau at hundred NL just couldn't get to, couldn't get to that next level, probably in retrospect, because I was thinking still, I was playing still too much, only my hand and not thinking about board textures correctly, uh, where I would kind of across a bunch of different boards, I would do the same thing if I had a given hand strength which I think is pretty common human error to make in poker. Sure. Uh, and yeah, and then uh, that was when I started really getting into Pile Solver, and that was basically was what let me advance from 100 to like 200 and then eventually 500. And tell me, you, you said that you tried out the pro poker lifestyle, decided it wasn't for you. How did that happen? Yeah, so after graduating just decided that I wanted to take a basically a gap year uh, just to think about what I wanted to do next. I had had job options in tech uh, and, but thought, well, I mean, there's no better time than now to like take a gap year and figure out some things. Uh, so backpacked from Mexico down to Panama and just, just, just was uh, playing online to pay for expenses along the way. Why and, backpack? Uh, Rather than 
I don't know. Like, why why did you choose to go that path instead of just, you know, existing in the U.S. or road tripping or just uh, getting a house and just grinding poker? Like, why, why uh, the adventure? Yes. Yeah, uh, well, well, I think it was for the sake of adventure itself and because it was a lot cheaper. I mean, living in Mexico is maybe like a third of the price as it is in the U.S. That's fair. That's fair. So you're backpacking and on the poker grind, right? Yeah, yeah. So how did how did it go and what led you to realize like uh I think I'm going to try a different path. Yeah, uh, pretty much immediately as soon as I started uh as soon as I started out the lifestyle, got hit with like a 20 buy and downswing right away uh and with just like whatever standard like coolers over and over again. I was like, "Oh my goodness, my mental game is not nearly as good as I thought it was." Uh, and just the stress really got to me a lot more than I thought it would, where I didn't have as much fun as I should have on that trip. Like didn't ended up kind of just like staying in. I, I remember I was in this like tiny apartment in, uh, Merida. It's like in the North Yucatan peninsula, one of the more Americanized cities has fast internet and all that. And instead of exploring the city was just kind of like sitting in that apartment for a week straight not uh not enjoying the city just like stressing out about about poker and why i can't like, get out of this downswing yeah that's uh <laughs> in a beautiful place and not exploring anything not seeing the outdoors you're on an adventure but you're not on an adventure right that's pretty pretty alarming what were the ruminations that you felt when you were going through this downswing the anxiety what did your inner self-talk sound like Mostly things like you, oh, you're never going to be good at this game. Like, why did you, why did you think that you were, why did you think that you were so good? Why, why do you think that you were able to do this uh, as a professional? Yeah. I think most, mostly things along those lines. Any conclusions that you came to and what was like the tipping point to where, all right, I'm just going to get a job in tech. Uh, so that didn't happen for, for a while after. I mean, it took a pretty long, took like a, a month long break after that and decided to actually take advantage of being in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah. Uh, so I just didn't pretty much went from Mexico down to like, or, or inside Mexico to Bacala, which is right on the coast. Uh, and then went to Belize and, and then to Guatemala and didn't think about it pretty much at all throughout that time. Luckily I had enough emergency fund to be able to make it. And so taking a break off really, really helped things. It's actually very surprising at how, how much you recover during that time. And you come back and you're like excited to play again and you want to actually try your best again. You don't have a lot of those negative thoughts. And uh, from there, it went, uh, went pretty smoothly, actually, where it was just uh, for the next three to six months. Uh, yeah, made the money that I needed to keep traveling, but eventually was just weighing opportunity costs and like a job in tech is, is a really good job. You, you have a lot of freedom. I work remotely and it's a pretty, you have a good salary and I happen to be good at it. So, uh, I, I just weighed the EVs of, of the options and you could, I could always play poker on the side, but it's hard to, it's hard to be in tech on the side. Yeah. Plus, you know, I don't know when you move, ended up moving to Austin, but you got a pretty good little spot there to play some live poker these days. Yeah, exactly. So for the past maybe year or so, I was traveling with friends sometimes, alone sometimes, just checking out different cities to figure out where I wanted to live. So checked out like Boston and Nashville, Denver. I'd lived in SF before. Uh, I'd lived in Seattle before. And then just when I came to Austin, it was like the perfect mix of there's a lot of really interesting people around. Food is awesome. Weather's nice. And the poker action's great too. So like I was saying in the pre-show, just uh, move down here, have a new apartment. Cool, man. And you know, you're playing some, some bigger stakes in the Austin area. Tell me how, I guess, how you've managed to progress as a poker player while still fulfilling your responsibilities with your job. And you know, eventually we'll get to like what your current goals are in the world of poker. Yeah. So I think it, 
it wasn't actually uh I didn't need to progress that much in terms of strategy to be able to play in the live stream games here. I mean, why, have, why is that, Charlie? Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> These are good games. I think anyone who uh, who goes and looks up the lodge or the Texas Cardhouse games can, uh, yeah, you'll see what the games are like. They're loose, they're splashy, and people are looking to show off a little bit. And it's it's a good time. And you don't mm-hmm. need to be like the the most in depth in intellect blockers to be able to beat these games. Fair, fair. So uh, I know you, you also have been playing in Vegas too, right? Like I think the introduction to Greatness Village, we'll, we'll get into that now too. What led to you discovering Greatness Village and the Chasing Poker Greatness community? Yeah, actually the, I should have mentioned it before, but uh, one of the things that when I was traveling in Mexico, the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast was actually most of what I listened to uh, in terms of uh, pod, like poker content. And so I guess I have to thank you because those were like very interesting podcasts and I took a lot, of, a lot out of them. So I'd always listened to the podcast, but I don't even know when you started the Greatness Village, but uh, eventually just saw it at one point and uh, through one of the, the mid-rolls, I think. And I was like, okay, I'll check this out. Yeah, I don't know when I started it either. Maybe a year and a half ago. I think the podcast launched in like October of 2019. And then Greatness Village launched like six months after that when I was just trying to like figure out what the hell I'm going to do with this podcast thing. And <laughs> if I can if I can make it work. Glad to have been a companion in your backpacking trip through Mexico though. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think it was... Uh... This was during the, the break after like I had that big downswing too. And so I think a lot of your, your guests and, and the questions that you asked tend to more focus towards, uh, towards like mental game and lifestyle aspects a lot. Uh, and so that content was particularly helpful. Awesome. I mean, I think that it's interesting because where I've come from in my career, I've experienced all the things. And so like I know what people go through and I know that like, the path to poker success is never linear and there's moments of just complete breakdown that everybody everybody that's been in this space for an extended period of time have gone through right and so like i just knew that when i started this thing that it was very important to talk about that just to shine some light on like yeah there's there's some bad times and the bad times are quite frequent you know if you for the listener you won't be able to see the inside of the elite program that's going on right now, but the elite program, you see it every day because my guys post like a two minute video or it's supposed to be two minutes. And sometimes when things are going particularly bad, the videos are like 14 minutes long. Um, (laughs) just like a lot of existential rambling, but, uh, the highs and lows just on a day to day or week to week basis are so extreme in this, in this space. And it's just something that I don't think people talk about enough that it it comes off sometimes for listeners is like, oh, it's this easy path where, yeah, it's just linear. Everything goes straight up and, you know, one day it all clicks and you just make a billion dollars and then you retire and that's the end. But that's like not what the lifestyle is like at all. Um, Speaking of that, I think it's like uh, when you to the question that you had before of like, what did you need to do to play in these higher stakes games? Actually, it was much more in mental game work and getting used to the stakes and the swings where you're, you have a lot of, like it's a, in a low splash game like that, there's a ton of variance and you're playing, I mean, you're, you're not going to, I'm not playing 2550 online. Uh, and so you, you can't have, like when you're playing live, you just have, uh, you probably have like the same variance as you do in online in terms of like uh, big lines per, per hundred. And even though the win rate is larger, that alleviates it to some extent, but you still have to deal with the, the much larger dollar amounts. Uh, and so I can remember the first time I was playing and, and you're stuck like, I don't know, 20,000. It was like, wow, that's actually a lot of money. Uh, and, and you just have to kind of be able to, in the moment, uh, not think about the money at all and really just be, that was where the, my downswing from before actually taught me a lot where it's like, you actually just have to, like, you can handle it and you just have to play through it and just keep playing your A game and not focus on anything before or think about anything after. Yeah, experience is the great teacher. I, I would say 
when you had the downswing before, like what stakes were you playing this 20 buy-in downswing? Because it doesn't sound like you were playing like obscenely high. Uh, no, it was mostly, it was a mix of like starting at 500 NL and then moved down to 200 NL and the downswing continued. <laughs> yeah. But then, yeah, when I, and then started back up and climbed, climbed back up afterwards. Yeah. So this downswing is probably like 8K or so. So how, how did you bridge the gap from like minus 8K to being able to lose 20K? Like where did, where was the bankroll boost in between there? Getting a job <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> was the bankroll boost in between and, and Bitcoin. <laughs> Fair. Uh, I guess both of those simultaneously can help a lot. Yeah. Funny story actually was that uh, I, my initial bankroll to play poker back in 2018 when I got really into it was actually me selling the exact bottom of Bitcoin. So I, I sold one Bitcoin for 38.50. And that was, and that was my, my initial bankroll start playing poker. And so, yeah. That 38.50, if I, if memory serves me correctly, um, was that after the run up to like 19.5 and then the yeah, yeah. giant sell off that yeah, was, and I was stuck around 6K for a while, dumped all the way down to like 3K really fast, and then went sideways for another month. And then I was like, this, this thing's going to zero. It's definitely going to zero. <laughs> and so I just took the, sold the, one of the Bitcoins I had and, uh, and, and yeah, I used it to, to play poker. And then, of course, it immediately rallies up to 11,000 after that. Yeah, I remember those days. In the pandemic, it actually dropped to like 3,500 too. Like in when the detox guys were in town because Nick was saying how he thought it was going to go like much lower to like 1K. Um, and, and I think like that's just, it's very hard to deal with the Bitcoin swings because every single time it feels like, holy shit, it's going to go down to zero. It's going to be like, this thing's going down to being worthless. Um, so yeah, it makes actually poker swings seem manageable <laughs> dealing with bitcoin swings yeah especially if you're psychotic like me and my friends who have most of our net worth in <laughs> <laughs> well it's working out right now so yeah we got that going for us so crypto goes well you get a job did you have any reservations about playing bigger and like being able to fade these 20k swings because i mean even when your net worth is more 20k swings a 20k swing yeah i, I think mentally i was fine with it because you can just work through the math and if you believe in your win rate and you believe in uh that you're not gonna well because you can't believe that you're gonna get not get like a two percent bad outcome but you can say okay yeah i guess like when you roll the die it's like 98 percent of the time you're gonna be fine and survive so i knew the math and i was actually still pretty uncomfortable at the table even after knowing the math where you you just find yourself extremely nervous to play uh and actually, it's a weird feeling because your body is nervous to play, but your mind is fine. Like I would find myself at the table, like feeling like really cold, actually, and like starting to, to shake. I don't know if that's just something that happens to me or that happens to other people, too, where it because my mental game seemed fine at the time. It was just a really interesting experience. What's interesting about that is it happens to me, too. And it happened like recently when I was playing like relatively small um, live poker where I was just like anxious and then sat down at the table and like just full on focused and kind of ready to go. And I think that for me, like, I think it's just my body, uh, just getting ready to utilize energy and focus and hone in and just try to play the best I can and try to observe all the data points because it's a level of intensity that like, isn't used in my day to day life, like on a regular basis, the level of intensity that I think is necessary for me to play at the level I'm capable of. So yeah, I, I feel the same. Like I get cold, I start shivering a little bit and I feel just like a massive amount of energy like in my body that's just like ready to ready to rock. Yeah, and then after one orbit, it kind of goes away, right? Where you just yeah. kind of like lock in and think and you're just like, I'm used to this by now. And I actually wish that I could achieve that level of focus in my real job <laughs> uh, where you're just like fully locked in and you can, you're just the... Like I've had times where I've been in a casino and I look down at my watch or I start the session. And then the next time I look at my watch, it, it feels like maybe 15 minutes have passed and it was like six hours. Yeah. You're just in the flow state, right? I think, I think the, there's more downside to not being focused at the poker table than there is probably in your day job. 
they're like the risk of not being focused in poker is just really big. Yeah, exactly. Where you're, if you're, if you don't, if you're not focused on your job, you're not going to all of a sudden just like be hit for 10 K. Right. <laughs> and if you miss a data point that can help you in a 20 K pot in poker, it's gone. And you're just left with like a bunch of regret and yeah, you're, you're just always at risk. And I think that's sort of the beauty of poker is like it forces you to be as focused as you possibly can. Otherwise you're just like, there is an appreciable cost to slacking off what looking at your iPhone, spacing out all the things. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard of people trying to try to force that in their day-to-day work focus with a sounds kind of extreme, but I know someone who had someone who like hired someone to watch them. And then like, they would say, if, uh, if they, if you catch me like being distracted, like I'll give you a hundred dollars every single time. And they're like, it was effective, but it was really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually seems like a cushy gig. You're probably gonna make $500,000 a day at least. Yeah, I think he dropped. He probably had to pay out like ten times that first day, and then I don't think he had to. He paid out any time after that. Yeah, it's. I think that yeah, when you have consequences, you're just naturally going to perform at a higher level, and it's easy to it's easy to go through your day to day with very minimal consequences for being distracted. So we do. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop, and you don't know what to do. One man, Coach Brad Wilson, has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. 100 NL player, former Sergeant Elijah Shears. Before I got Nuffle, I had run into a lot of dock bets. And I think once you play a certain amount of hands, you know there's something wrong with our opponent's strategies, but you don't know how to play to maximize CP against it. And it's very frustrating. I looked at the document and I couldn't believe that I paid money for it. I actually doubted that it could provide value because it was so brief. But since then, it's repaid me just over and over and over again. And it's one of the most consistent money makers built into my strategy that sheds light on just how bad your opponents are. And it took me 20 minutes to perfect it. And it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm speechless. It's just that good. The simplicity of it is part of it being a masterpiece. <laughs> Nuffle. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash courses. Tell me about one of the first times that you played big and the feelings that you felt, like you said, you felt a little bit nervous. I know that you've had some pretty big wins, so you can talk about a big winning session if you'd like to. Yeah, the, uh, the first time I played big was probably actually just a few months ago where there was a win, 510 uncapped game, uh, but everyone's sitting with like 20K behind. And we get... Uh, this is probably my first time, or this is my first time in Vegas, first time uh, playing stakes above 510, certainly first time playing an uncapped game. Uh, and within, I get myself on the wait list and there's uh, the new, brand new table starts. And as soon as the first hand that we start playing, this, uh, this one French guy open, like straddles for $400. <laughs> Welcome to the game. You got 25 VPs <laughs> if you bought in for 10K. I'm like, wow, okay, I guess we're going to be playing this. And then you just kind of, you just have to trust yourself that, okay, like how, how likely is it that this guy is better than you? Like pretty unlikely. So just kind of call for chips and hope that it goes well. And uh, it did. So ended up, uh, only, actually, I, I switched. Uh, there was like, I was at a must move table, so I didn't get to stay for that long. But I mean, at the rate that this guy was just spewing money, it was pretty easy to get some of it. Nice. How, how, how'd you end up in that first shot take you had? Uh, plus 9.3K. Not a, bad, not a bad day? Yeah, it was definitely nice. And you had a better day than that, actually. 
if I if memory serves me correctly in the uh, hashtag chip porn channel in <laughs> in Greatness Village that Coach Thomas just had to have. Yeah, I had a big winning session at the Bellagio and also mostly to do with there being a really big whale at the table. So I think a there was a the session was actually going pretty poorly at the start, really poorly, uh, down like two buy-ins. Uh, I was buying, so it was a 1020 game and was buying in for like 5K. And then, yeah, it was down around 10K and then was about to leave actually. But then the 50-100 game inside of Bobby's Room breaks and the, the game, the main part of the whale who was like at that game decided that he didn't, he wasn't that hungry. So he just comes to play with us. An extra seat gets added to the table uh, specifically for him, escorted by the floor man. And he immediately asked to double the stakes. So we played 2040. Uh, and yeah, just couldn't miss a hand or, or like every single run out hits where you're just every single flush draw hits. One of those dream sessions that you don't get very, you don't get too often. Yeah. Yeah. So how'd you do that session? Plus 23K. So one, yeah, it was a big swing. Went from that negative 10K to up 23. Yeah. That's a pretty good, pretty good first experience playing, playing some bigger stakes. You win, well, not even a full Bitcoin these days, but close. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That was after I had more experience playing those stakes. I mean, I was in the Vegas grind for like a good month before that playing 1020. Yeah. Well, a month is not that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Relatively speaking, I know you're young. Charlie, but a month of grinding, that's still relatively new, <laughs> new to the stakes. Yeah, but I would still say that even, I mean, like 500 ML is much tougher than 1020 live. So It can be. I guess it depends on the lineup. I haven't played much 1020 NL live lately. And from what I've seen, I think on like the live streams, uh, I would say <laughs> the 500 is most certainly a tougher game than those games. But um, so... Going back to your discovery of Greatness Village, I remember when you joined the community or when I noticed that you joined the community because I was on vacation in Florida and I just got a bunch of email notifications and somebody had just like bought all my courses like <laughs> in one one swing. And I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, then you posted in the Chipporn channel and that was when you know we got to know each other a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was a big fan of the podcast and I got, uh, got the free neural promotion, the neutralized river leads. And I was like, Oh, wow, this is really easy to understand. And this is nice. So I just remember, yeah, I think I, after that, I mean, your products are very reasonably priced, <laughs> probably cheaper than they should be. And <laughs> at, at, at stakes where, where you can lose 10K in a session, make 20K in a session, like <laughs> 400 bucks is like nothing. Yeah. So. Uh, I appreciate that. And yeah, I, I think you're right too. And I, I think that like anybody that plays like 500 or one KNL or five ten live or whatever, it's just kind of a no brainer to not only invest in what my products, but in other training that exists out there too, that trying to find something that resonates with you because like the pot odds of the situation is like, it doesn't have to do very much to make a massive impact and pay for itself kind of within one session. How, so once you bought the, the material though, what did you think of it? Uh, how did you think of, I guess, the way that it's structured? How, did you have any other experience with poker training stuff? Oh yeah, you, you grinded run at once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bought a few different courses. Like uh, there's this one guy, Alvin Teaches Poker, bought his course, had like uh, had one of the upswing courses, like the, the Kanu 7 one. So yeah, was definitely exper more experienced with some of the poker trainings, but but those two were, were yours are very interesting. Where it's I mean it's MBA where you're it's not like here let's let's teach you how to play GTO and like or or in the case of Kanu Seven's course it's like this is a high stakes player and you're just paying him to talk for, about poker for like seventeen hours and it's much less uh, like extremely actionable content than what you have where yours is like okay facing this like do this against the fish. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's much easier to implement and le less uh like philosophical. <laughs> yeah, I think that was that's sort of my my unique selling point is like this is just like a roadmap of actionables and do this in this spot against this specific profile and it performs very very well, which I, I think is a fun way to make courses if it 
even if they're not as philosophical as the other guys. I like being philosophical as much as the next person. I just don't know how impactful it is at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's also nice to have some confirmation of of things that I've been previously doing, where it's like uh, I work in data uh, as a data scientist, and so I have a lot of experience with data analysis, and so bought a bunch of hand histories and like started trying to do my own MDA work, uh, and so a lot of the conclusions that that you would come to were things that I was already doing. So that's it's nice to have confirmation of that. Cool, man. Um, so that leads to the next question of. What does the process of regularly improving your game look like these days? Uh, yeah, so I'm definitely not uh, grinding as, as hard as I was before. So uh, probably both because of it's not strictly necessary and because I'm not trying to be a pro. Sure. So it's much more relaxed and that I will just review hands that I've played and you just note down a lot of, it's like, okay, I... You know, down every single question that you have, and you go back and try to try to like write out answers to them later uh, with a combination of whatever the standard tools like EndNote and for MDA and using like aggregated reports and Pio, of course. And you just try to answer those questions as best you can and uh, seek help from people who who know better than you. It's uh, yeah, it's not it's not too structured. It's just like slowly finding. And then overall, I think I'll, I'll dive into like a, a more macro level when you have a bunch of hands that you mess up that are all kind of like the same spot. So I noticed uh, a few months ago that I was badly misplaying the big blind and that's pretty important spot. Uh, so I was just over aggressing way too much in inappropriate spots. And you just notice that you're getting stacked in like the same, or you notice that your bluffs just aren't going through in a specific spot over and over. And you're like, okay, I should probably look into how to actually play the spot. Yeah. and. For the listener, I think you know this is a greatness bomb in that you need to track these data points and track these hands to find the commonalities. Because like, if you don't track it, if you never write it down, if you never think about it again, you're never going to see the patterns. If you never see the patterns, then you don't have any entry points into plugging that leak or upgrading your game. So even if you play live poker, you do need to track your hands, track your spots, write down when you're confused or when multiple options look very similar. Um, and then just try to answer those questions in the best way that you can. And if you don't know how to answer the questions, well, that's the question, right? <laughs> that's the question to focus on is how do I start answering these questions with the tools available on the market? Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing about playing on live streams is that you don't have to keep track of your hands and you can always go back and watch them again. So that's one of the reasons I like playing on them, not just because of the, the great action, but also because I'm lazy and don't want to <laughs> write down my hands at the table. Yeah. And when you show up to PPH, you just have a stream to pull up and you're like, here's this hand I played. We can see <laughs> everything in real time of what's going on, which is much better way of uh, bringing a hand to PPH than just like a written record on a notepad somewhere. Yeah, and especially since I have a horrible, horrible memory. And it's weird because I'll, I'll play a session and if I didn't write down the hand like right after it happened, I just have no memory of it. You know what's weird about that? And I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I used to have like recall that I could just recall the exact situation, the way that it looked visually in my head, every single action everybody took, the way they looked, the way they put chips in, how long they took, what they were thinking about, what I was thinking about. Like when I was, you know, from 20 years old to probably 24 years old. And then one day when I just started grinding online, like 1500 2K hands a day, it was like, okay, um, I would end my session and then just have almost no memory of anything that happened. Like I know that things happened. I know that there's a result and I know that like I either won or lost, but the next day I couldn't recall any of the hands which is kind of interesting. And I think that like one of the major uh, factors of that is a, I was fully obsessed with poker from like 19 to 24 and B, once you have a database, like it's kind of redundant to remember the exact hand in your head because it's, it's tracked already. So you don't really have to. Yeah, exactly. And I think that even on top of a database, I think it's important to have some sort of organizational structure that makes it easy to identify the spots that you're probably misplaying uh, or just some way of organizing your notes. So 
the way I, I do it in Notion, uh, testing out Rome right now, but you just have like a table and you can write down all the aspects about a hand and uh, just write down like all of those questions like I talked about before. And so you can always look back on them and say like, okay, this is what I was thinking at the time. And this is, uh, you can sort by like different sorts of spots through your pots or, or stuff like that. Yeah. And it's good to revisit that too, because like what I found, so I've made play and explain videos in multiple ways. One way is just recording while I'm playing, which is like the easiest and laziest way to make a play and explain video. Um, and then I've also done it where I record my session and then narrate the recording. And so this is like me reviewing my past self playing poker in a session, which is a little bit different experience because, you know, you would think that in some areas you have more clarity after the fact, which you do, and that like you're always more precise afterwards. But I've actually found that I'm not always more precise afterwards, that when I'm in the moment and kind of in the flow of a session, I'll do things that seem very weird to me afterwards, but then they work out. And so I've just kind of realized that like, I've got to trust myself in those spots, um, which is kind of a weird feeling of like, I don't know exactly why I did this or what I must have seen or what I must have known, but I did it and it worked out. So I guess I just trust myself and my ability to navigate these spots. And then other times, of course, you will be like, yeah, you fucked this one up, Brad. <laughs> like we clear, <laughs> clearly have something to work on in this spot. But um, yeah, a little bit different experiences with both uh, methodologies of play and explain. But I, I have always found it interesting that like in the moment we see things a little bit differently than we do afterwards. And it's not always like a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, that part about trusting your intuition is super important where, and it's, it's really the best feeling in the world when you go with something that you can't explain and it works out. I just remember being at a table at 10 20 and the guys just, you put in like, I, I just, uh, it's like a single race pot, ace high. It's like ace seven, six, uh, two tone and three, but pot. I checked to him and he just like double over bets for three streets. And obviously I'm just thinking like, there's, you just have a feeling that you can't explain. Like this guy just doesn't seem, just doesn't have it. And you kind of know that he doesn't have it. I don't know. It's, it's just a weird feeling and you just have to go with it. And it's a really great feeling when it works out. Absolutely. Like I found that in my business life as well, that like, this is the one, one part, I guess, about my life experience that I think is interesting is that whenever I've come to the conclusion that I should just trust myself and trust my intuition, trust my subconscious, trust what I'm doing, it's very freeing. And a lot of the anxiety about different spots kind of just melts away because it's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some things that don't work out but I'm going to do a lot of things that do. And just that ability to trust myself has served me very well. And in a business sense, you know, I am the classic person of like over research and I know how to do a lot of things that I've never actually put into practice, but I study things. I try to figure them out. And one of the things with business was like, do a lot of market research, see what people are buying, make something that's kind of similar to that. This is like the classic tried and true stuff. And that just didn't resonate with me. I couldn't figure out, like I did research. I was like, I don't know, like none of this stuff is like really what I want to do or what I think is like impactful or necessary. And I just read in a newsletter that was basically like, man, fuck market research, go with your gut, especially if you're an expert in the field and just see what happens. And again, it was this this ability to trust myself where I was like, all right, I'm going to do preflop bootcamp. Like, because I think preflop play is something that people screw up all the time. I think it's impactful. I don't know if anybody's willing to pay for it because <laughs> there's no, nothing really on the market like it, but I'm just going to go with it because instinctually I think it's a good thing and it worked out and it's done quite well and people love the program. And then from there it was like, okay, like I can trust myself in this space as well. So what's next? And that was sort of like what led me to structuring Fish and Barrel and Feeding Frenzy and Nuffle and Neural and all the other things. And yeah, I just think like for the listener, 
in a lot of instances, you can trust your gut, even if it goes against conventional wisdom, even if it goes against like what people are saying. I think that just living life by trusting yourself is just a much better way to go. Yeah. And I think you have to add a caveat to that though, where you were an expert in the field and like in my True. hand, I just run that spot in Pio and knew that knew the spot. And there's a great blog. It's uh, common cog, which is it's like a mix of it's mostly business strategy. And, but he also talks a lot about uh, naturalistic decision-making, which is a, a field of like, how do people obtain expertise? And he had a really great post on when do you trust your intuition? And it's basically about uh, the summary is that if you are an ex- if you only trust your intuition, we should only trust your intuition when you have some sort of expertise in that specific spot. Like your intuition doesn't transfer to other places. Uh, for me, it's very salient whenever I play tournaments. <laughs> when, I, when I think like, oh, okay, 20 big blinds. Like, yeah, I think this is a shove. Uh, and then you look it up later and it's just like destroying EV because of some like ICM thing. So you definitely yeah. have to be studied in a spot before you can trust your intuition. 100%. Like you need to be an expert. Like basically when you're an expert at whatever you're pursuing, trust your instinct because it's honed on just years of experience and years of thought, years of analysis and years of philosophizing about poker, just all the things in my case. And I think that once you are an expert, you can kind of trust your gut when it comes to making these types of decisions. And, you know, if your gut steers you wrong, then I think it's time to like really analyze everything that went into that decision and see where, if something actually went wrong or something just happened that was like beyond your ability to foresee, which I think that happens as well. You know, you, we, it's the same in poker, right? We do the best we can with the information we have. And sometimes unforeseen things just happen and smash us to oblivion. Um, same thing applies to life as well. So, you know, right now let's talk about your, your current goals in poker, man. You're already had a 20 K winning session. You're playing somewhat big on the stream. Um, is your end goal? How much bigger do the games go on stream? What's a typical stream game that you play? Yeah. So Texas card house in Austin runs the, it's like a five, 10, 25, usually with a 50 straddle. Uh, and then, but their card house in Dallas is a lot bigger. And so they'll run, uh, like a 25, 50, hundred. Uh, and then the lodge will occasionally run a 25, 50, 100 as well. So I think that's pretty, that's as high as it gets to. Uh, and I would definitely like to take a shot at those. Need to probably get more bankroll before I can actually. Bitcoin needs to go up a lot more before I can play <laughs> in, in a 50, 100 game. <laughs> yeah, 50, 100 game where people are buying in, I'm sure, like 500 bigs deep and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That's a big game. It's a big game. Um, you could lose like one Bitcoin in a pot, which is quite a lot of money these days. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the largest pot that they had on the stream was like 140K or something. That's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, that's a big pot. Um, how hard is it to get on these streams, by the way, for the listener who's maybe in the Texas area? It depends on, it depends on the night. So I think they're pretty friendly to, or very friendly, actually, to newcomers. Uh, and, then they, and then from there, they'll like, if you play, if you play like board style, they won't invite you back. Yeah. Uh, and so you definitely have to be, you, you can't just play like a net, basically, <laughs> unless you're famous and then you can. But if, if you're just some random guy, <clears throat> then you do have to have like a more exciting style. You do have to get your VPIP up there. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, I think you, you probably don't want to be a nit playing in those games, especially on stream. And, yeah, and that's the style I like anyway. It's just yeah. more fun to play like a lag. Of course. Like, it's more fun to get involved. It's more fun to just put yourself in more high pressure situations that are in muddy waters and could go either way. And you just rely on your ability to problem solve and intuit your, <laughs> intuit your way to making better decisions than your opponents. And the reality is, like, the opponents that you're playing against are also in unfamiliar territory too. And if they're a lower level player, you're just going to do better than them naturally. So yeah, always, uh, always been a fan of like getting involved, getting in there, giving action, playing big pots, being, being a fun player to play with. I think that's one of the more underrated aspects of playing live poker. And I think that we see the value of that these days with a bunch of the Vegas games just going private. Yeah. Yeah. And I know in, 
here in Austin, there's also some, some bigger private games too. And so back to the original question of goals, I definitely want to be able to build up, uh, build up some more cash and be able to not lose in those larger games at least. (laughs) (laughs) How, when you say larger private games in Austin, are they spread in the card room? Are these like home games? What does it look like? Yeah, it's a mix. It's It's a mix. Yeah. I'm always scared of playing in a home game when there's like regular card rooms nearby. Like it's just a, it's it's just scarier for me just because there's just more potential for shitty things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, like some of these guys won't just don't want to play in or don't want to be seen like in a card room or something. So for whatever reason, so uh, whatever, I I don't think there's anything uh, like too bad going on. Yeah. I mean, what I mean is like, basically the rake can be absurd. Um, The, you can get stiff. There's not, it's not a given that like there's not cheating going on and like you have no resource uh, or recourse yeah, yeah, yeah. if if some shenanigans do go down, which I think like those are all the downsides of the private games. And then the upsides, like you said, there's people that just want to play in private games at a giant mansion in the middle of nowhere with uh, catered food and drinks and massages and all that stuff. Well, Charlie, it's been great having you on, man. Um, been great getting to know you and very grateful that you're a member of greatness village and come to PPH with these, you know, big live hands every week. And I guess before we end, tell me if you could put up a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino. What would your billboard say? I think presence, like be present where it just, it helps with everything, really. And <clears throat> I know you're a big fan of Jason, Jason Sue's work. And before I even found him, I was pretty into Buddhism and mindfulness anyway. And there really is a noticeable difference when you're present versus when you're not, where you can actually get everything, <clears throat> not only get every single data point that you need to play, but you're also just a nicer person, like nicer to be around. Absolutely. So Jason too is going to love that. I just remembered something from like five years ago because I've been big into meditation and mindfulness for quite a while before I met Jason too as well. And there was this like meme or something going on where people would like write a reminder on their hand um, to just like remind themselves of some like short tidbit. And I remember because I was courting my now wife at the time and we were like talking about like what we would write and i remember i wrote on my hand be present because it's something that i value and and especially having adhd where i get distracted i'm very fidgety quite easily it's always just a good reminder to kind of come back into the here and now and be grateful for the experience of being alive and pay attention to what's going on around me because yeah i i can sometimes be a space cadet and just be off in dreamland so yeah another plug for jason sue and his presence deal um yeah i mean i think speaking of adhd i mean i have it and like my friend who got me into the game has it so i think there's there's just something about poker that attracts people with uh, this kind of mindset. I think Maybe so. Like 50, I would, I would bet that more than 50% of people who play regularly are ADHDers. Yeah, we, we need the stimulation. And there's lots of data points. There's lots of problems to solve. There's lots of things to ruminate on, right? Like we get rewarded for obsessively thinking about the strategy of the game. We just can't switch it off, which can be <laughs> both a curse. But in this case, it could be a blessing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a curse after a, a session where I it's really hard for me to fall asleep after playing. Uh, and I, I don't think that's specific to me. I think a lot of people have that as well. Yeah, you have like lots of adrenaline. You have lots of things going through. Your, it's just hard to wind down, especially after playing at a high intensity level. You can't just switch it off instantly, right? I think I had um, for an April Fool's episode, Scott Seaver, who's the drummer for Tenacious D, um, came on the show and he talked about like rock stars and ha- why they tend to do drugs. And just, it's because you end a show in front of 50,000 people, you go backstage and you're by yourself, right? It's like, 
how the fuck do I like go down from, from this? Because I, you know, I imagine you're very stimulated. It's very hard to get to sleep. It's very hard to shake all those feelings off. And so drugs, uh, just kind of make sense. Yeah. And something that helped me was writing down all the, all the timestamps of like hands if I'm playing on a live stream or Trump or just, uh, like going, looking over the hands I played, if I, I was just writing them down, that mm-hmm. helps a lot. I don't something about like the, the closure stops the, stops the rumination, uh, where you kind of like, okay, yeah, I'm going to look at this spot tomorrow where you're not just like, so you have some sort of forward expectation. So you're not just ruminating it. Like you said, I don't know yeah. if you have any other tips besides that. Not really. I, I think that like releasing energy, um, just releasing energy in any way that you can, but really just naming it, putting it down on paper in the same way that a database collecting hands allows you to not really uh, have to remember all all the specific hands that you played in the session. When you write it down, you recognize, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to keep ruminating on this because it's down. I can come back to it later. So you just feel more comfortable, kind of just letting it go. And uh, one more question, and then we'll part ways. What's some common poker advice you hear regularly? And I assume you do hear common poker advice being in the live poker arena that you just completely disagree with. Yeah, it's funny because live poker is so far behind online poker that, uh, that I just remember being at a 10-20 table and people are like explaining to one side of the table, like the concept of GTO. <laughs> and, and, so, and it's just really funny that uh, like the, the people online, I think, have kind of moved, not entirely, but uh, moved past the notion of like, just follow the solver output and like, you'll be fine. But I think a lot, that's probably a trend that's going to start happening in live where people are trying to take solver outputs and just like play them perfectly because it is slightly far, farther behind. So I'd say that that's, that's definitely the, the advice that I would disagree with most where there's, there's so many, like there's only one way to play at 0%, uh, like exploit, uh, where you're not exploitable at all. But if you loosen up the 1%, there's nearly infinite ways to construct a strategy that can be, uh, that's within 1% of uh, the true solution. And then if you just can, if you want to constrain the, your EV within to be within 1%, then you can start to optimize other things like simplicity or, towards pool tendencies or stuff like that. So I think it's just people think about strategy construction uh, poorly. Yes. And I think the listener knows my feelings on this at this point in time. And also I shudder to think at the ways live players are going to mangle GTO outputs, trying to, (laughs) trying to follow them religiously. That's just going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, and you see it on, on stream sometimes with uh, some people just trying to be, you can tell that their aggression is coming from them studying a solver uh, where they're just making crazy check raises or trying to play like Limitless <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, it's, well, like you said, it's uh, the live game is way behind and likely catching up to the solver and then they're going to go through their dogmatic solver phase where a bunch of them get just utterly destroyed and then they'll come to terms with like, okay, maybe we got to do something else along with the solver to improve, um, which is what's happened in the, in the online poker space much more quickly because, well, the game evolves and you get a lot of data that you can learn from and it's really hard to ignore the data. And uh, maybe live poker just always stays that way <laughs> because they don't, they don't ever get the data that tells them otherwise, right? Yeah, and I think another reason why live poker might stay that way is just because it's, I mean, the games are always built around recreational players and it's just more fun to be a recreational on live game than it is to be a recreational online. For sure, for sure. Cool, man. It's been great having you on. Thank you for your time and your energy. I look forward to... I look forward to seeing your path through poker, seeing you on a 25-50-100 stream, breaking some hands down, um, seeing how far you can progress. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely the goal, like I said before. So uh, I definitely also hope that I'll be there. And I just want to thank you again for all the content that you put out. It's having run a podcast myself. I know it's, it's just a ton of work and you putting out four of these a week is just pretty psychotic in addition <laughs> to everything else you do. So uh, 
yeah, we, us, the listeners definitely get a lot out of it. And so it's uh, awesome that you're continuing. Thank, thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate it. And it's always a joy doing these things. I, I know that it is a little psychotic, but I genuinely love having these conversations. And if I didn't, then I wouldn't be able to produce so much content. So I'm glad that the listener enjoys listening to my tangents about the Korean situation and all of these things that, uh, you know, that pique my curiosity that I want to know more about, because really that's, that's the point of the show. I just love having amazing conversations with amazing people. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. I'm sure we'll run this back sometime in the future. Take care. Best of luck. Can't see where you go next. Or can't wait to see where you go next. (laughs) Can't see. (laughs) Can't see. I'm blind. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.